0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today we are reading from John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word of God for the people of God. You may officially sit down. (laughs) Well, good afternoon. I hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, In the event that you didn't catch our sister Christina, we're going to find ourselves in John chapter 1. We're looking at verses 14-14. 18 this uh, afternoon. Before we get started, uh, one of the things I mentioned to you last week is that we do have a gift for y'all. Now, if you get up, everybody's going to look at you. Um, But uh, one of the things, or the gift that we have for you is an Advent devotional. This Advent devotional is a four-week devotional. It was written by authors in our congregation, and uh, this is our gift to you. So after service, you can go ahead and pick one up. Our desire is to produce resources for you to engage God's Word and to grow as a disciple. And this is one of the ways that we try to make that happen. So you'll see those outside. Well, other than that, let's dig into our time. If you didn't know, it's officially official. Thanksgiving has finished and Christmas is basically here. The weather is slightly changing. Mariah's carry music evangelizes to us at department stores. Uh, decorations are being set up, if not already. Uh, done, or maybe you never took them down to begin with, and the stories of Santa Claus are being prepared. And some of you, even upon me saying that, some of you might say, well, I'm not pro-Saint Nicholas, and that's silly of you to say. You should be. He was a bishop in the third century, a wonderful theologian who was known for his generosity, and the rumor centered around Saint Nicholas was that he punched a heretic in the face. If you don't believe me, read through church history. St. Nick was pretty amazing. But more than the legend of a theologian punching a heretic, more than the music of Mariah Carey, the start of this season is marked by something better, someone greater, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today marks the start of the season of Advent, and if you're familiar with what is called the church calendar or the liturgical calendar, you'll learn that there are seasons throughout the year that focus on a particular time in the life and ministry of Jesus. The season of Lent, for instance, focuses on his time in the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and fought against temptation from Satan. Holy Week and Easter focus on the days leading up to his death on the cross for sinners and his resurrection where he conquered sin, Satan, and death. Advent is the season that is marked with His arrival into human history through the virgin birth. This occasion is the greatest moment in redemptive history because it changes everything, and whether you're a Christian or not, the arrival of Jesus affects how your life is shaped And so as we consider our text this afternoon, John wants us to know that the arrival of Jesus is the single most important moment in redemptive history, because not only is it foundational to the Christian faith, it is God revealing His glory and character through Jesus. And so let me pray, and we'll dig into our time. Father, as we come to You through the study and preaching of Your Word, give us understanding and wisdom. Lord, would You humble us this afternoon so that Your will would be our will. God, we pray that Your Word would be sweeter than the taste of honey, that our thirst would be quenched by Jesus' work for us. And God, we pray that our souls would be renewed, our hearts would be renewed through the counsel of the Holy Spirit. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have never read through the gospel according to John, I would encourage you to do so. He writes very differently than the other accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you read through the gospel according to John, it's pretty clear early on that he's probably a creative, and he loves to make you think with thought-provoking language. John's language intentionally is meant to catch the attention of his listeners. And so in verse 14, John opens up with something that would have caught anyone's attention in his day. So let's go to this. Let's go to verse 14, and he begins by saying, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the word referring to God, what John is saying is that God entered into human history by becoming a man. Theologically, we would call this the incarnation. The word incarnation means flesh. It comes, the, the root word or the root meaning is in the flesh. Think of carne. Right? Think of God, and everyone had gotten this past week. Everyone had meat that was on some kind of bone. Right, the incarnation is God in the flesh. Incarnate, incarnate in the flesh, and so the opening statement of what we see in John speaks to us about the mission and method of God in saving sinners. In other words, John is saying that God was not and is not far off like a distant and disconnected parent or supervisor. God is not uninvolved or disillusioned to our condition. In fact, God is so aware of our condition that He steps into time and history The mission of Jesus was to save sinners like you and me, and the method that He chose to do so was by moving in. By moving in and becoming a man and without losing His deity. The early church would say it this way, without losing what He was, He became what He was not. Jesus entering into human history is him fully man. And fully God. This is crucial to the Christian faith. It's crucial because as a man, Jesus can sympathize with us in our time or in our need for grace through seasons of hardship and suffering and moments of temptation. But in addition to that, as God, Jesus is the only one who could actually deal with our sin by receiving the wrath of God in our place. By God becoming flesh and dwelling among us, John says that the glory of God has appeared once more. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth the word glory means weightiness and what could be more weighty what could be more significant than god entering into our world god entering into time and space See, the doctrine of the Incarnation goes beyond Jesus as simply an example. It goes beyond beyond Jesus simply as a moral figure or an enlightened being. It goes beyond that because historically we know that Jesus of Nazareth was real and existed. But the question that the Incarnation forces you and I to deal with is recognizing that God took on flesh, becoming man without losing His deity. John continues in this section, by referring to John the Baptist, he goes on and says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What John the Baptist is saying about the person and work of Jesus, he's saying not only was Jesus preeminent, but he is preexistent. He is stepping into time outside of that. He already he pre-existed. In other words, as one theologian says it, Jesus was always wasing. The glory of God appears to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. Next, we have the character of God. This is in verses 16 to 18. The incarnation of Jesus reveals the character of God in at least three ways. Beginning in verse 16, John writes, "For from Him," or excuse me, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace."? All right. The first way in which Jesus reveals the character of God is through grace. Grace, if you didn't know, if you were unaware, it is undeserving favor from God towards sinners. Grace teaches that God is so gracious towards us, not on the basis of what we have done, but solely because it is in His nature to be gracious. Theologically, we would make two distinctions with grace. We would say something that there's something called common grace and then something called saving grace. Y'all follow? Common grace and saving grace. Common grace is God's grace to all mankind. If you're enjoying the fact that you have air in your lungs, that is God's common grace upon you. Physical health, that's God's grace upon you. Having a job, that's God's grace upon you. Having friendships, God's grace upon you. In short, no one living has not been the recipient of God's common grace. That is brought on by God to all. And then we have God's saving grace. God's saving grace where He redeems sinners, not for a certain time or only for a season, but forever. Saving grace is when God changes the heart of a sinner, forgiving them of their sin, and saving them from the wrath of God, making them His. Not for a season, not for a short time, but for all eternity. In Jesus, what John is telling us is that God's grace is poured out abundantly, especially in His death for sinners on a cross. The question would be why? Because it was only the grace of God that could save us from the wrath of God. Outside of God's grace, we we are all under God's wrath. And what we did not deserve, we received freely. The first way that God or that Jesus reveals the character of God is through His grace. The second way that Jesus reveals the character of God is in God's truth. So John says from fullness, grace and truth came. So he reveals the character of God through the truth of God according to his word. And so we need to consider that. Well, what is it that the Word of God tells us? What is the truth that the Word of God tells us? Well, the Word of God at least tells us two things at the very minimal. The first one is that it tells us the truth about man. That is, apart from knowing God, man's heart is filled with rebellion and selfishness and pride. In a word, sin. The truth that we get from God's Word about man is that we are the problem. The second truth that we pull from God's Word is the truth about God, that God cares enough about men and women that He dies for them in order to bring them back to Himself. The truth of God was not revealed through rumor or philosophy or speculation, but in a person, in Jesus Christ When it comes to the truth of God, we need to anchor ourselves in the Word of God, because outside of that is where we get into a little bit of trouble as Christians. Oftentimes, what you'll see with many Christians, not all, but what you'll see with many Christians is that we have a tendency to make the truth of God relative or subjective or selective. Here's what I mean by each one. When we make the Word of God relative, we're saying that there is no absolute. That there is no absolute. What's true for you might not be true for me, but the Word of God draws lines in the sand. Jesus is God, is a line in the sand. That we are sinners in need of grace is a line in the sand. That our hearts are dead outside of god's salvific grace that is a line in the sand the truth of god is not relative the other way is where we become subjective where we become filled with the opinions uh, concerning the truth of god through culture or the world or philosophy But the thing here is that we don't deal with opinions, not that we shouldn't know what the world is preaching, but we don't deal with opinions. We deal with truth as revealed in Jesus. So I'm not telling you not to read other things. What I'm telling you is to make sure that you are anchored in the truth of the Word of God first. And finally, and probably one of the more popular ones is We get into trouble when we make God's word selective. When we make God's Word selective, that is where we begin to pick and choose what we like about God's Word, what we want to agree with and what we don't agree with. We're going to put it under the rug. We're not going to talk about it. We don't like to discuss these things because not only does it make us uncomfortable, not only do we disagree with it, we want to be selective. And when we do that, we're not necessarily worshiping the God of the Bible. We're worshiping the God that we want to create for ourselves and call it fair. So when we dismiss that the incarnation reveals the character of God through the truth of God, we need to make sure that we are anchored in God's Word. Avoiding the dangers of making God's Word relative, subjective, or even selective. To draw this point a little bit further, John takes it uh, uh, another notch by writing about the law. Going back to verse 17. He says, "...for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ." The law often refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. And this is where God, in His grace, gave His people wisdom, instruction, and a way to live. If we can summarize it one way, the law reveals at least two things. It reveals what God values, holiness, obedience, righteousness. And it reveals what we value, ourselves. The law exposes our hearts. It exposes our rebellion and our fragility. Apart from the grace of God, we cannot keep the law. We cannot obey the law because we are enslaved. We are doomed. But God doesn't leave us there. You see, the law also provided a foreshadowing of the forgiveness of sin through sacrifice. And in verse 17, John is telling us that the incarnation of Jesus is greater than the law. It doesn't forfeit the law, but he is greater than the law. He is greater than the law because Jesus fulfills the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on to tell his listeners do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to see it through fruition. I've come to see it in all of its promises. Jesus fulfills the law. He fills the moral aspect of the law. That Jesus, though He was tempted like you and I, was without sin. Jesus fulfills the ceremonial part of the law. In other words, no longer do we have to sacrifice bulls and goats because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice who went to the cross in our place in for our sin, once and for all. The law was not forfeited because Jesus stepped into time and history. God did not change His mind. But God in Christ does for us what we cannot and could not do for ourselves. The grace of God, I want to make this really clear, the grace of God does not forfeit the law. The grace of God now frees us to obey God. The law drives us to Jesus, and Jesus, by His grace, now frees us to obey God. And we can do so through grace and truth. Finally, Jesus reveals the character of God in making the Father known. Verse 18, John writes, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has made Him known. Jesus reveals the character of God in making the Father known. That is, while no one has ever seen God, God has also entered into history as Jesus Christ in a way that enables us to know the Father through Him. In John 14, Jesus is talking with him and his disciples, and, and he goes on, and Philip goes on to ask, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Just, just show us God the Father, and we'll be good. Like, we'll believe you, we'll follow you, we got you. And Jesus replies by saying, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The incarnation reveals the character of God by making the Father known through Jesus. So, in the end, why is the incarnation significant? This is where we'll spend the rest of our time. What makes the incarnation significant? I want to give you six implications. They should be up on the screen. Six implications for why this is significant. The first one is salvation. The incarnation reminds us of our need for divine rescue. That if we could save ourselves, we would not need Jesus, but we cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us. The Incarnation assures us that God keeps and fulfills His promises. If you rewind all the way back to the pages of Genesis 3, what is it that God will say? Hey, one day there will be one who will come from woman. There will be one who will restore all things. The incarnation assures us that God keeps and fulfills His promises. The incarnation tells us that there is only one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who has healed the divide between God and man, reconciling us to the Father. That reconciliation language, that's relationship language that He has brought us back into relationship through what He has done on the cross, not by what we have done. The incarnation reminds us of our salvation. The second one is identity or identification. The incarnation reminds us Weak Christians, struggling Christians, the incarnation reminds us that God can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. No other religion can meet this. And this is not just because God knows everything, but because Jesus experienced it himself. Are you struggling? Are you a struggling Christian? Are you a weak Christian? Look to the man of sorrows. Look to the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. The author of Hebrews says that he is able to sympathize with us and give us grace in our time of need. As I considered this in my own life, there are many aspects of what I do that sounded really cool before engaging in some of the conflicts. And what I'm thinking about is pastoring and parenting. I was all about, like, prepping sermons. I was all about doing all the things with my family, but uh, I don't think I was prepared for uh, as prepared for unresolved conflict, being wounded, wounding others, family attacks, hardship, Emotional drain, lack of sleep due to anxiety. Some of you have experienced that and more. Something far deeper than that. So, then where do you go when that happens? Where do you go when that happens? Because the truth is, if I'm just being honest, it's really easy to go to escapes, it's really easy to go to the bottle. It's really easy to find yourself escaping in recreation. It's really easy to find yourself escaping in porn. It's really easy seeing yourself escape into something else to dull whatever is going on. Here would be my encouraging, my encouragement. Go to the man of sorrows. He's the one who is acquainted with grief. God, who owned it all, took on flesh. Jesus understands what it's like to be mocked, ridiculed, tempted. In short, Jesus knows human suffering. So, draw near to Him. Rather than looking at escape, look to Jesus and draw near to Him. As you draw near to Jesus, know that you are not alone or unknown. Number three, adoration. The incarnation leads us to worship, and we worship with fascination. Again, when you read John 1, man, you could tell he's a creative. You could tell he's probably coming out of the coffee shop, and he's just weird. But the idea behind this is that he stirs in us fascination about Jesus. He invokes imagination. Man, what would it have been like to have walked with Jesus just like the disciples did? And ultimately what John is doing, particularly in this first chapter, is that he is telling us that glory is not in a thing. Glory is in a person. His name is Jesus, and we are made to adore Him. We have been created to worship Him because there are none like Him. Number four, imitation. Imitation. Spiritual maturity is measured by likeness of Jesus. Say it one more time. Spiritual maturity is measured by likeness in Jesus. I said it over here. I'll say it over here in case you guys didn't hear. Spiritual maturity is measured by likeness of Jesus, not diplomas, not popularity, not success, and not your experience. Spiritual maturity is measured by whether or not your life looks like that of Jesus. The more we look like Him, the more united we as the church will be. The more we look like Jesus, the more we will be like Jesus as we love one another and those in our community. Imitation. Number five, anticipation. The incarnation reminds us that God always keeps His promises. See, for the Christian, we live between two Advents, and one day we will see Him. Jesus is not only our pattern of life, but the provider of our hope. Anticipating His return has a purifying experience to our souls. The Christian is waiting for Jesus' second Advent, and so, in the meantime, we worship, we proclaim, and we share the beauty of the gospel in the meantime. Anticipation. Number six, proclamation. The incarnation is foundational to our faith because God entered into human history to save sinners like you and me. And as you and I wait for the second uh, advent of Jesus, you and I proclaim that there is someone greater that this world has to offer. You and I proclaim Jesus. Think of the best thing you experienced on Thursday or Friday. Jesus is way better than What you got to experience Thursday or Friday is a slice. On Friday, we had a Friendsgiving at our house. And every year, um, I cook a turkey a different way. And uh, so anyway, so this year, I cooked it. I'm not going to get into details. So I cooked the turkey. It was really, really good. But after we carve the turkey and we serve the turkey, everybody's laughing. Every, it's really loud in our house. Um, and, uh, and so I'm going up to almost each one of the guys. Hey, was the turkey? Hey, was it good? Was it good? I'm like trying to hear what they got to say. Like, I want to hear, I want to spread the good news of my cooking, right? Like, Jesus is greater than any good news you can bear. Any good news that you experienced this week, Jesus is better than and when it comes to proclamation in me checking on everybody when it came to the turkey, ultimately what I'm trying to do is like, hey man, I got something good. You got to try it. I just, I just cooked this turkey a different way. Tell me what you think. That's what it means when we proclaim Jesus. Hey, I got something better than what you're going through. I got something that I gotta tell you about. I know someone that is greater than what you're going through. I know someone that is greater than the cares of this world. I know someone who can address that thing that your heart is aching for. I got someone who is gonna speak truth into you, and it might feel like a surgical cut, but I promise you it will be healed by the same person. I got something greater. The message of salvation is indiscriminate. It is for all to receive. The incarnation has the implications of salvation, identification, adoration, imitation, anticipation, and finally, proclamation. And if that was a lot, it's on the notes. St. Nicholas said it well. Well, <laughs> the giver of every good and perfect gift, has called upon us to mimic His giving by grace, through faith, and this is not of ourselves. We are recipients of the greatest gift, God's grace, and Jesus is proof of that. The season of Advent tells us that God did not leave us to ourselves but sent His Son as more than an example, more than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than a good person, but to be our Savior. My hope is that this season of Advent, Jesus would outshine every other smaller detail in your life. Not that those details are unimportant, but entering into time and in history is far, or God entering into time and in history is far more significant than Amazon. Therefore, Christian, I want you to know God's grace is for you. I want you to sit in that for a minute. Earlier today, I met with a couple of the guys for our preaching cohort, and we're working through a bunch of different things. And this is one of the things that we talked about. We can easily dismiss this because you and I have a tendency to say, yeah, 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 I know, know. just tell me what you need to do. No, no, just listen. God's grace is for you. The gift of God's grace has been given to you. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then let me encourage you to sit there longer. God's gift for you is His grace. Not just in His provision over you, but in calling you to Himself. Are you struggling? Look to Jesus. Do you long to grow in your faith? It's not an experience or diplomas or success it is in looking like Jesus. So look to Jesus. The gift of God's grace for you is truth from God's Word to you. God's grace is for you. If you have ignored it, if you have dismissed it, then man, let me encourage you to come before Jesus. Let me encourage you to look to Jesus. Confess your sin, repent, and look to Jesus. I, I get it. I see it, right? Because now we have lights and not like these dimmers at the incubator. right? And so now we have lights, and so, so I see y'all like ready to write the notes. Just tell me what, you, what, to, what to do. I just want you to sit in God's grace this afternoon. That's what I want you to do. I want you to sit in God's grace because that's what the text calls us to because he is full of grace and truth. And if you don't know Jesus, you are a recipient of God's common grace. You're a recipient of God's common grace, yet you still stand before him under judgment. But God has provided a way for you to know him through faith in Jesus This is a truth for you to receive, and that is our desire here at Storehouse, for you to receive this truth. Repent of your sin, turn away from it, and trust in Jesus. Church, the incarnation of Jesus reveals the glory and character of God. Let's pray.